Hi everyone, my name is Vlad Radulescu and today I'm your host for another great episode of the EBT podcast. Alongside with me today is a, a very strong woman, literally and figuratively. It's Alisa Olenik um, and she's strong because she lifts a ton of weights and she also is strong because she has a business and she's uh, coordinating uh, different programs, workouts and she's also a PhD student. So uh, hi Alisa, thank you for being today with me and uh, thank you for accepting my invitation. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. It's uh, it's my honor to have you as a guest. So uh, before we dive in in uh, today's topic, and that uh, would be women physiology, I'd like to kindly ask you to talk a little bit about yourself. Like, uh, how did you end up in the fitness and nutrition niche? Yeah, so I feel like my story, I try to keep it as condensed as possible when I give this on podcast because I feel like it is very long-winded. But I mean, basically, I was an athlete growing up. I played lacrosse mostly. I ran a lot. I got into the strength lifting kind of sort of a little bit starting in high school just to support sports. And then um, I got into college and I was playing lacrosse and I was going to school for pre-professional health science. And I basically was kind of making my own exercise science track there within my program um, with electives and I was taking a lot of science classes. And I quickly realized that I wasn't as good at lacrosse as I hoped I was, but I was really good at school, which is funny because I went into college thinking that I was not good at school, but good at sports. So um, at that point in time, I had never identified as someone who liked science, but I actually started to like it a whole bunch um, and really kind of changed a lot of what I viewed my career could be and all this stuff. But even then, freshman year, walking in, not knowing anything about the field as a whole, I didn't really necessarily know I wanted to be in the fitness industry. But I remember thinking that like my dream job was to be a pro Nike trainer. There was this pro Nike trainer that I followed. And I used the Nike training app for running and little circuits and stuff like that because I didn't really know much of anything. But I remember thinking, like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and so I was told to change my major, but I was like, no, I'm going to stay in the science because that that's harder. So that's better. So I'll get a better job. But I didn't know what I was doing. But I was just young. I liked sports. I liked working out. And I just knew that I wanted to, like, learn a bunch about it and help other people with that. And so that kind of carried across college. Um and then after sophomore year, I ended up leaving the lacrosse team. I was, you know, really focused on school. That was my priority. And I just wasn't playing as much. And I knew that like academics was where I was going to like continue my career. So I just made that choice. And after I did that, I, my advisor at the time, I reached out to him and told him what was going on and I was able to graduate early. And so I messaged him and I was like, Hey, like, what should I do? What's the best approach? Like, you know, we're going into the fall semester, this and that. Should I graduate a year early and push it a semester early? Should I extend it out two years? Like, what should I do? And he kind of was like, well, you should come do research in the lab in the fall and let's go from there. And so I, beginning of my junior year, I got into exercise science research in the lab there and I kind of fell in love with that. And that's where I, I kind of started to learn more about the opportunities of masters, PhDs, research science, um, all that stuff. But at the same time, I started to get more into weight training, lifting. Um, I started to kind of, I, I wasn't formally powerlifting at this time, but I was definitely doing a lot more barbell heavy training. I was still running quite a bit. Um, I just were, was training all the time, fascinated, trying to consume as much information as possible. And that kind of carried me through the rest of my my time in undergrad. And then I got more into powerlifting towards the end there. I did a strongman. Um, I knew I wanted to go get my master's in exercise physiology. And so kind of after there, that pivot point was probably like my end of my college career um, going into my master's. So I went to Western Kentucky University for my master's in exercise physiology. 
that's when I got super into strength training. And it was during my master's where I started my Instagram. And so at first I just sold little plans online because I just didn't have money to pay my bills over Christmas break. And so I was like, well, I'll, I'll sell an exercise plan. Um, but I didn't have really any intentions of being big in the industry. I knew I had an academic path and all that stuff. And it kind of just snowballed from there. Um, I shared my powerlifting journey, but then I started, you know, to move away from that into in other things. And I actually started my PhD at um, Vanderbilt in molecular physiology. And I just knew that exercise was like my one true love. And I really saw that once I was there. And so I, I left Vanderbilt and I messaged my now advisor because I was originally was looking at coming at to the University of Georgia anyway. And I was like, listen, like this isn't my path. This is what I want to do. I'm the exercise girl. I love this. This is who I am. This is what I've always wanted to do. And so I took a hard pivot, left that program, really great program, just not for me. Um, started my PhD, was training for my first ultra marathon and started my business all in the same semester. And it's really just kind of exploded since then. So I always say that I like accidentally got strong and I accidentally started my business and I guess technically like accidentally found my path to my PhD, but I've just always really loved learning and I've loved movement. And I think I've just kind of spiraled that into, you know, a whole life of learning and educating and teaching, um, and kind of ending up in the fitness industry. So uh, that's kind of how I ended up here. I don't want to say it was accidental because it was definitely intentional and took a lot of work, but I saw a big gap in the industry leaders, especially the exercise physiology based professionals. And a lot of them were male voices. Um, and this was even before that I was like really the female, female phys person totally like by that cliche niche of research. But I was like, Hey, like, you know, why aren't there any women that are educated sharing science and education, the fitness industry versus like some of the other messages that are being sent out there to women? I was like, I want to change this. And so that's where I kind of took that big hard pivot in both my research and then also probably my, my voice and presence on social media. I think that your voice and presence on social media is a good thing and is very educational for both male and female trainers because there's an acute need for information nowadays and what way to get it then from evidence-based practitioners like yourself. Uh, I can say that your, your educational uh, journey was a roller coaster from what you mentioned, <laughs> going from a PhD there to master's there, sorry, from a master's there to a PhD there. But I think that the, the most important part is that you found something that you like and that you stick with it uh, to the end. And uh, as long as you do what you love, then you never work uh, a day. Uh, that's a saying that comes into my head right now. Yeah. I mean, for me, sometimes I have to stop myself from working so much because I really do love what I do. And that's really hard for me, especially because I'm killing the end of my PhD and I have to figure out what I want to do with my life. But I really love so many things about the fitness industry and research and science and all of those things combined that, you know, I sometimes have to rein myself in from doing too much because I, I really genuinely like the work that I do. I love it. It excites me. Um, it gives me a reason to wake up every day. And I'm, I, you know, I'm excited to do the work that I do and have the voice that I have on social media and in the classroom and in the research and stuff like that. So I completely agree. I know it's very cliche and cheesy to say, you know, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. And I, you definitely have to work and I work very hard, but I pull a lot of joy and excitement from that work. That's awesome. That, that's really, that's actually a, a little bit rare, but that's awesome. <laughs> so diving, diving to the main topic of the day, it's a women physiology. Uh, as I know, uh, as I actually know, you already talked a little bit about women physiology and you do a lot of talking uh, about this subject. So for our uh, female and male followers, because some of them might be trainers and want to know more about uh, women physiology, 
I suggest we should start with a little bit of a definition of the menstrual cycle and uh, its implications with different hormones. What do you think? Yeah, we can do a little basic one-on-one. Um, so it actually shocks me and makes me a little bit sad how often, um, you know, no offense dudes, but men not being as familiar with the menstrual cycle isn't always as shocking the f- female physiology and hormones and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of women are just never really formally taught about a lot of this stuff. So I am always taken back with it. I remember that I didn't actually know a lot of this stuff until I actually started digging into it for research. So I always like, like to preface this, that if you don't know these things, that it's not your fault and you're not dumb or anything like that. But a lot of stuff doesn't focus on educating us or, um, it keeps information from us so that we're confused more and we buy into products and things like that. So, um, I look back and think about how much this information would have helped me as a younger athlete growing up because that's what I did and I love fitness and sports and I had no idea. So when we think about our menstrual cycle, we can think of it in two major phases, the follicular and the luteal phase. And you could even split those into a couple of different smaller phases and we'll go through those here. And so your follicular phase is going to be from the onset of menses or once your period starts. Um, and that first week of that phase when you're on your actual period experiencing your menstrual cycle, that's going to actually ironically be your lowest hormone phase of the month. The reason your menstrual cycle, like the onset of it occurs because of the crash in your progesterone and estrogen hormones at the end of your luteal phase. And so that's when you shed your lining of your uterus because you're not impregnated. So your body's kind of repeating the cycle over again. So ironically, this is actually when women are like, quote unquote, the most similar to men because you have the lowest hormone profile during this week. Um, But then as you get into the second half of the follicular phase, you do have a gradual rise in estrogen. And at this time, progesterone is still low. Um, Estrogen is going to be the dominant uh, sex hormone at this time. And that rises um, as you approach ovulation. So coming with also follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, those are kind of rising with it. But estrogen being that main dominant one we think of here, because we usually think of just estrogen and progesterone and how those affect um, everything we're going to talk about later on in this episode. But the estrogen rises and peaks right around ovulation, and that's when your body releases the egg because it wants to get pregnant or assumes it's going to be. But assuming that does not happen, then after um, your body, the, the hormones crash, and then you have another rise. So then you have high progesterone in this phase and high estrogen, and the progesterone is generally higher than the estrogen, so it can kind of dominate those effects of estrogen that we see is positive in this phase. And so in your, in the middle of your luteal phase is your highest hormone phase. And this is where we tend to think of like PMS symptoms, maybe bloating, poor thermoregulation, maybe we're a little bit hungrier, things like that. Cause you have high hormones of both at this time, but then your body doesn't have an egg implanted. It's not preparing for a baby. It's not building up that lining so that it can implant that and grow a fetus. And so at that point in time, you have a crash in your hormones or they drop back down to lower levels. And then your onset of your next period occurs. Um, Generally on average, this is about 28 days, give or take a few days. It can be longer or shorter within a healthy range. Um, But on the average, it's about 28 days or once a month, as we know, and then it repeats the cycle over again. Yeah. So basically there you have it. Menstrual Cycle 101. I just have a, a few medical uh, uh, pop-ups. As yeah, the, go ahead and add more to it. I kept that pretty pretty. I kept that pretty simple and yeah, vague. Yeah, that's so awesome. feel uh, free to add whatever you want. Uh, there are just two of them, so the people don't get bored. Um, yes. So basically, as you said, 
in the first days of uh, after menstruation, your hormones are mostly related to the men one. And uh, that's yeah. the best time to investigate any possible illnesses. Illnesses, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Short break for my head, but uh, going moving on. Uh, and also, as, as uh, Lisa mentioned, uh, a regular mean average, let's say, of a menstrual cycle is 28 days, but it can be normal between the range of 25 to 35. Yes, I couldn't remember the range off the top of my head, so I'm glad you added that. I was like, is it 26 to 32? I couldn't remember exactly what it was, so I'm glad you you added that too. Not so the, no one freaks out about their cycle length. Yeah, that, that's actually the main reason I, I felt the need to add it, but, yeah. but your explanation was top of the class, so uh, I, I really much appreciate it. And I will add too, when we mentioned about, you said about, um, and that we can talk about this a little bit more if you'd like, but... Um, that you might assess for conditions and stuff in that first week because of that. Um, that's actually where a lot of people will control in research studies too, right? You're comparing women at that low. It's really easy, right? If someone's on their menstrual cycle, they know they're on it and you can kind of know what their hormones are doing without having to test or control for it. Um, so it's easy to compare women to men at that point in time too in research um, for those reasons. Totally. Assuming the individual has a regular menstrual cycle. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. So how can these two phases that you also mentioned, the follicular one and the luteal one, influence our our uh, performance in the gym? Our yeah, I mean, so I, women performance, not our, like, my yeah, self included. So, yeah, so for, you know, cis women or people that are menstruating, if you fall into that category, um, I really like to give the disclaimer and caveat that like there was a couple actually recent meta-analyses that came out last year and view papers and the one that was on specifically the menstrual cycle. Um, a lot of it comes down to individual. So I say this stuff is exciting and fun to learn about, but if you're someone who doesn't experience drastic symptoms or anything like that, like you're not broken, but if you're someone who does, it's perfectly okay to individualize your training or your nutrition to match where you're at. Um, not every single person's going to be the same and have the same menstrual cycle experience. So keep that in mind that I'll share these things. Um, and while they're not necessarily false for you, the magnitude of them might be different person to person. I think that's important to highlight because really all the recommendations for menstrual cycle control and training and all this stuff is like at this point, it's like it should be come down to the individual. But when you look at the tease out the individual studies, you see a little bit more trends. So um, with that being said, ironically, during the first half of your menstrual cycle or like the follicular phase, um, especially even when you're on your period, that might be one of the best times for, for performance. I know that can seem really counterintuitive since a lot of women, uh, you know, can have really extreme menstrual cycle symptoms or just being on your period is not fun for performance. Um, but like one of the fun facts I was like to share is like Paula Radcliffe, who set the world or the American women's record for the marathon, or I don't know if it's world or American, one or the other, but she was on her period when she did that. And so you can, you know, perform hard with cramps. Um, it may not be comfortable, but you are at a point where that might be like a really good time, you know, if you're going to race or perform. And then with the rise in estrogen in that second half of our menstrual cycle, we're a lot more uh, glycolytic, we're more carbohydrate dependent. We might be able to do more high, harder intensities because we're going to be able to 
rely on estrogen um, for these things. So you might be able to push your weights a little bit more, push your intensity. You're going to have estrogen, which allows you to potentially recover a little bit better. I know we tend to think of like testosterone as being the only performance um, enhancing sex hormone, but estrogen actually has a lot of positive benefits. Um, and you're able to use more carbohydrate dependent metabolism at this time because estrogen allows us to do that. So you might have better lactate clearance. So that means you might be able to perform at higher outputs with less fatigue. Um, you could maybe, this might be a good time for setting PRs, doing high hard training blocks, things like that. And so again, these things are individualized, but there is a couple studies that do show that, you know, during strength performance to match that, sometimes women do see better results. So that is an option and it's not always conclusive like that, but estrogen is a positive hormone. Um, your muscles might recover a little bit better. You might feel like you have more energy in your workouts. That's a good time to push it. Um, but then when we get into the second half of the menstrual cycle, that luteal phase, that's where things kind of aren't as ideal, but this is where we can use nutrition um, and stuff like that to help prevent these things. So progesterone can have anti-estrogen-like effects, which means that it can like inhibit all the really positive stuff we see with estrogen. So it might cause you to not be able to be as glycolytic like you are in that first half of the cycle. So that means if you're trying to do really high, hard power outputs, maximal intensity, whatever that is, it might blunt a little bit of that. You might have some higher blood lactate um, appearance during exercise during this time because of this, because you're not as good at carbohydrate metabolism. You might not be as aerobic. Um, so you're going to be having to like kind of work harder at the same intensity. Things might feel harder. They might feel heavier. Uh, there's also... Progesterone is also linked to poor thermoregulation during this time. So especially for people that are runners or doing things that, you know, you're turning over body sweat and you're trying to rehydrate, stuff like that. Um, it might be harder to keep up with your sweat or um, having your body maintain its temperature. It's going to be a little bit hotter during this time. So you're just going to be, it's going to feel harder. I maybe at the same intensity due to this kind of stuff. Um, and so your body actually is a little more lipid oxidation reliant during this time. So you might be feeling yourself craving more fats because of this. There's progesterone has higher, uh, as a negative effect on muscle protein synthesis and breakdown. So you might be breaking down more muscle tissue during this time because of this. And so and you might think that your performance is totally shot during this phase of your menstrual cycle, but not necessarily. There are some studies that show that when you ingest carbohydrate, like pre or intra workout carbohydrate during the luteal phase, it actually reduces the effect of the, like the difference between the follicular phase and luteal phase, where if you do it fasted, um, people will have a slower or a, their, their time to fatigue is quicker during that second half of the menstrual cycle. So they're not able to sustain performance as longer. Um, but when you supplement with carbohydrate, that actually can reduce some of that. So this is where it's a really good time to even though you might be oxidizing or using more fat, but providing carbs for yourself for your workouts so that you can still take advantage of glycolytic metabolism and providing that for your body. So it has that, especially around or during your workouts since your body's kind of struggling with it at that point in time. And assuming you're not also in taking adequate protein intake across your whole cycle, hopefully for high volume training women or fitness focused women, they are. But if you aren't, the second half of your menstrual cycle might be a time for you to consider taking an extra, you know, your extra protein shake or an extra serving or a little bit more protein in your diet from food um, to help support that as well. Um, and then also just paying attention to your fluid intake, um, electrolyte intake, things like that to work around that within your performance. So a lot of that can be hopefully combated with nutritional strategies. You also may take the option if you have, you know, if you have a lot of hard, heavy PMS symptoms, 
um, or you tend to struggle in this block, this might be a good time for a deload or a down week or maybe not as intense workouts um, and save those for the first half of your cycle if you're you're extremely sensitive to that. But then you crash back down on your hormones, back to your menstrual cycle, and you kind of repeat it over again. So hopefully that was like a pretty good quick summary on that. Yeah, actually, that's uh, full of uh, information. And I think people should take a pen and a, a notebook and write it down. But um, as, a, as a curiosity, are there any disadvantages of these particular uh, hormones like in the follicular phase, is estrogen really a superhero or does it uh, have some bad influence? So we think of estrogen as being like the superhero and the secret superpower of women, but it can, it has been related to extra laxity. And you see that a lot um, in pregnancy, right? Women tend to feel like their joints are more lax and they're moving around a little bit more that way. Um, so, you know, there might be higher injury risk then due to this during this time. Um, I'm not really sure of the exact statistic, but, um, I do know that it can be related to ACL injuries in female athletes when estrogen levels are higher, hormones are higher. Um, I read a review paper last year where there's like even consideration of intentional manipulation of oral contraceptives around seasons and stuff like that, because estrogen gives us a lot of positive metabolic effects, but, um, I can also lead to that. And that's a little bit out of my scope, injury and stuff like that. But in general, estrogen can be related to those things. So while you can perform higher and harder, you also may just want to be careful, especially if you're someone like I'm personally a very lax person. So um, I, when I was younger, I had to be careful to begin with around that. Um, but it might just be something to be cautious of and more aware of if, again, you're someone who's more sensitive to those things. And what, and, uh, what about progesterone? So we, we tend to think of progesterone as like the bad guy, like progesterone just is no fun. Um, I feel like all the negative slack if, with fitness and training is due to that. Um, so that, those high levels of it, they, it can inhibit all the positive effects that estrogen has on metabolism and performance. So that's the unfortunate part about the luteal phase. Estrogen is high, but progesterone is also high and potentially even higher. Um, so it can blunt those positive effects. So where estrogen allows you to be more like glycolytic and have better carbohydrate metabolism, clear lactate better, maybe have high, higher performance, high recovery, progesterone kind of blunts all that. Um, and you're relying more on fat oxidation, which estrogen, it's tricky because estrogen is fat, like promotes the pathways that improve fat oxidation, which is good. And one of the reasons women are able to like benefit from that, but progesterone inhibits our ability to be as glycolytic. Um, so we might not be able to perform as high and hard and intense. And then if it's inhibiting muscle protein synthesis, it's inhibiting recovery as much. Um, and then if it, it, it's tied to those effects of poor thermoregulation. So it's really progesterone in the phase that is driving the ship of these poor outcomes in performance. But, um, again, it, it can happen, but carbohydrates and protein, just like any point in your cycle or any point in training, um, can be really, really good friends, especially for women. Um, which unfortunately I feel like that's the population that tends to fear carbs and under eat protein a lot of the time. So the biggest thing is like progesterone can have negative effects and that can be very individual. Um, everyone's experience is different, but we can, you know, be smart in how we approach everything outside of our training, um, to help reduce that. So from a um, macronutrient point of view, mm -hmm. if I may say, yeah. you, you, you recommend an increased intake of protein throughout the whole menstrual cycle, but with a little bit of accent in the luteal phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if you're not, I mean, it, it's hard to say clear cut, like if women are eating, say, like I eat 
one to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight a day in protein, which in kilograms for everyone else who listens to this, it's like probably two to 2.1 or something like that. Um, so I'm at that very upper end of the spectrum. So like, I don't, I don't know, have any hard data on for sure. Like if more than that makes more of a difference, but if you're a woman who's eating on those lower, moderate ends of the spectrum, it might be worth increasing that protein intake if you're not already or extra won't hurt kind of thing. Um, and then you actually are expending a little bit more calories during the second half of your phase. It's not crazy. I know women have higher cravings during this time and that tends to be an issue, especially for nutritional stuff. If people are trying to, you know, regulate that. Um, but maybe somewhere in a couple hundred calories, maybe 300, um, and increasing that you're going to be craving more fats at that time. Generally you hear that report from women, except like chocolate and things like that. But, um, a little bit extra carbohydrate can actually make a big difference in your performance at that time. So don't be afraid to increase calories and make that coming from protein and, and carbs. If you want a little more fat because you're craving fat, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but timing your carbs around your workout, a little more strategically and making sure that you're getting adequate protein intake in that phase can help reduce at least some of those negative effects. And regarding the follicular phase, uh, you mentioned an increase in uh, fat oxidation processes. Yeah, estrogen has a, a lot of positive effects on the fat oxidation pathways. So um, estrogen can stimulate these estrogen receptors in our muscle, which can then stimulate downstream pathways um, within our muscle that lead to increased fat oxidation, um, but increased mitochondrial uh, density and just biogenesis or like the growth and proliferation of mitochondria. So they actually have a really positive effect on on that specifically and muscle mitochondria is like the one way in our bodies we can increase mitochondrial um, content and efficiency which allows us to be able to oxidize more fuel so women are a little bit more oxidative in nature this is why we're kind of good at endurance stuff i guess in recovery um but yeah so estrogen promotes um the improvement of fat oxidation pathways because it stimulates them so having these higher levels of estrogen you're having a more stimulation of er1 alpha receptors in the muscle tissue which leads to downstream pathways so that's related to pgc1 alpha um and ampk kind of the master regulators of oxidative metabolism so women have that advantage there and then these processes are more dominant in type 1 muscle fibers and women on average tend to have a little bit more type 1 muscle fiber than type 2 in males so that allows them to be more oxidative as a whole so then during that you know that part of the cycle estrogen alone it allows us to be we're a little more carbohydrate dependent during this phase but the actual underlying metabolic processes that allow us to use fat are also um, positively influenced by this as well and so women tend to use more fat as fuel during exercise than men, especially um, when you're looking at, you know, comparing the menstrual cycle to men as well. Men are just more carbo, they're more glycolytic as a whole, um, but women are actually a lot better at relying on lipid oxidation um, and being a little bit more oxidative in their metabolism due to the stimulation of these pathways, um, their sex hormones. And then there's also more of a willingness in women's bodies to give up like adipose tissue triglycerides for oxidation during exercise than men just do just like differences there as well. Is there a, the possibility that the intramuscular triglycerides to be used for uh, fueling the workouts? Yeah, there is. Um, and, and exercise. Uh, sorry, sorry. Let me let me complete the question. Uh, yeah, sorry. Is is this way a good way for the body to spare the glycogen uh, deposits? Yeah, so that's exactly it. So exercise training in general 
leads to greater or muscular intramuscular triglyceride storage, especially in those type one muscle fibers. Um, and then women do benefit from that as well because of estrogen. So being able to utilize that, that is the big thing about it is more carbohydrate um, sparing. So it's going to prevent you from either stealing from your blood glucose as rapidly or depleting your glycogen stores as quickly. Once you get to really high intensity, sometimes that stuff isn't as prevalent. Um, but when we're thinking about either submaximal or steady state um, intensities, that is going to make a bigger difference because you're going to want to spare and save carbohydrate for later use. So yeah, that is one of the advantages. And that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because I totally forgot to bring that up. Um, so that's that's seen in athletes in general, but um, because of the effects of estrogen on muscle, that is something that is also positively influenced in women. And in this particular follicular phase, uh, would you agree that women might benefit from eating a little bit more fats, like switching from uh, the carbohydrate dominating uh, diet to a more of a fat one? I don't know for sure. I'm hesitant to say that at any point for exercise performance, eating more fat besides like a recovery standpoint or just health standpoint is necessarily more advantageous because you are using lipids during exercise, um, but you have an abundance of it because women also have higher body fat percentage as a whole, and they're more likely to liberate that as well for oxidation during exercise. So I don't know for sure. I can't answer that completely for sure. It's not a bad thought. I just... I am not 100% sure if that's better or not. Um, rather than just like your standard macronutrient profile of what your preferred diet intake during that time. But you might get away with, you know, t eating less carbs maybe if that's a better way of thinking of it because your body's going to be better at preserving that during exercise. Yeah, it was just a, a hypothetical idea yeah. I, I just uh, got. Yeah. But maybe a study or something will uh, show us if there are any... Uh, differences in the future. Yeah, I do know for sure um, when you look at a lot of the research on women across the menstrual cycle as a whole, when women are fed, a lot of the differences go away. I know that sounds silly. Um, there's usually more sex differences between men and women than differences within women themselves when they're fed. So that's, that is a big component either way. So it's not a terrible idea. Oh, awesome. I, I feel uh, I, I, I had a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. But uh, what about the, the muscle types? Because you just mentioned the uh, women might benefit from in uh, in the type 1 muscle fibers. Would you mind explaining uh, the slight difference between type 1 and type 2 and the mixed one? Yeah. So we have kind of three types of muscle fibers in our body, but it's like two main ones. And then the type 2 are split into two, two subtypes. Um, so we have type 1 muscle fibers. And you can think of these as like endurance fibers. They're going to have, a, they're going to be really oxidative, which is a really fancy science way of saying that they're really good at using oxygen or oxygen dependent energy metabolism pathways. And when we say that, what we mean is um, the processes in our bodies that can use oxygen to break down glucose and lipid, but you can only break down lipid or fat in our bodies by using these oxidative pathways. And so that's why we think of these as our type one, our endurance, they can go all day because fat gives you a lot of bang for your buck, a lot of energy, um, but it's not, but these fibers, they don't have as much um, nerve innovation as them as your type two. Um, they're not as powerful. So they're very fatigue resistant due to this, but they're not as powerful. So um, 
but you can think of these really truly as your endurance running muscles. That's the easiest, like most common way for general people to think about it. Um, think about, you know, you don't want to have really big muscles when you're trying to be, you know, a peak elite endurance person. Of course, you're going to have muscles to some degree, but the, they want the, you want them to be able to use oxygen very efficiently. They, these muscle fibers have a ton of mitochondria. Mitochondria are where these energy processes take place in that. Um, they're where you're going to have a lot of proliferation or um, improved content of that mitochondria. So that's just more efficient as a whole. It allows you to use that oxygen more efficiently for performance. And then you have type 2 muscle fibers, which are split into type 2A and type 2X. And so type 2A are going to be our moderate muscle fibers and type 2X are going to be like our really, really powerful muscle fibers. So totally opposite of the end of the spectrum. When we think of type 2X muscle fibers, we're thinking of like our power lifter, very glycolytic, not like using tons of carbs, phosphocreatine system, short, explosive, really powerful, really strong, maybe not even needing a ton of fat, at least in the moment of activity. Um, a lot of neural innervation, they can produce a ton of force, but they fatigue very rapidly. So the opposite of type 1 being low force. Um, low fatigue. These are high force, high fatigue. So you're not able to do your one rep max 10 times in a row, right? Where running, you can repeat that contraction all day long, theoretically. Um, I'm an ultra runner, so I will say yes. <laughs> uh, but then, but then, you know, to some degree, but then the moderate or any immediate ones, type 2A, are the same fiber as type 2X, but they can change with training. So you can shift a type 2A to a type 2X more so in characteristics or vice versa. We are not going to be able to switch from a type 2 to a type 1 for the most part. Some animal research sees this, but for humans as of now, very unlikely. Um, so th this is when you take those type 2 fibers that are very powerful and you're training them. And so they build more mitochondria, they become slightly more oxidative. So they're kind of your moderate. So they have you know, good power output, but they're not as fatigued, but they, ha so they kind of have a mix of best of both worlds of those other muscle fibers, but they're not excellent at only power output or excellent at only oxidative capacity, but they're basically a more powerful muscle fiber that has a lot more mitochondria in them is the best way to think about it. And training can influence, um, those adaptations in those muscle fibers. Thanks for clearing that up for everyone. Yes. <laughs> um, Moving on with a, a little bit of uh, another question, but still in the woman's topic. Yeah. Uh, what are the main tips that you recommend or the main takeaways for uh, a woman that wants to get fit? Uh, the first one I should start is a myth that I have in mind that women get bulky. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we need to reframe our mindset of what bulk actually is, right? Because technically by someone else's standards, I might be bulky, but I'm a very muscular woman, but I'm still not as muscular as my male counterparts. But there are dudes that I am more muscular than in. So when I teach this to students, I tell them everything with strength, muscle, performance with women and men is probably more of a Venn diagram than two separate circles, so to speak. Um, two, that being bulky takes a lot of effort and a lot more effort than people realize when they first start training in three general strength training for health and performance unless you go into it with the intention of gaining mass and size will not make you bulky you have to be very intentional in that but resistance training in general is incredibly important for women because we have you know 
especially if you go into older age, if you don't have a good muscle baseline going into that, but there's high rates of sarcopenia or muscle loss, but also osteoporosis or osteopenia, bone loss. And these are highly prevalent in women, especially after menopause, when they lose their sex hormones, which can have a lot of protective effects on health. So we want to build ourselves a sturdy rig and a solid base across our life for those reasons, but also in general, having muscle tissue and lifting weights is very good for us metabolically, for health, for longevity, for performance, all these things. So I think it's important to reframe and get away from just only thinking about our bodies as a whole with that and think about like how important this is for us, but also that getting bulky it takes a lot of eating, a lot of training, a lot of work. It has to be very, very intentional. Um, and there's a lot of ways to resistance train if you personally prefer to not have that look. But to some degree, most of the physique changes that women desire are actually driven by improvements in muscle quantity um, or decreased adiposity. But it always involves training muscles to some degree, um, not just doing only cardio or avoiding lifting entirely because they're worried that they're going to get too bulky. It takes a lot of work to gain muscle, especially as women, because we don't have testosterone. Um, so we're not going to just she-hulk it out after a week in the gym. Yeah, precisely. Totally agree with that, <laughs> with that mindset and uh, the whole reframing idea. And uh, another thing that I usually see mostly in women, no, no offense to the women side of our followers, but I see that they are usually tend to have very low caloric diets in order for them to reach their physique objectives. Do you have any uh, tips for them not to understand that the, the uh, very aggressive caloric deficit might be very harmful for women especially? Yeah, so I think this is probably my one of my bigger messages I have on social media because, I mean, I'll put it this way. I'm a woman who eats and I've always been a woman who eats, but I, I, I understand where women are coming from from the messages because my my history of fear of food was more so of two, of for athletic performance kind of thing than maybe necessarily body composition itself. And there was so much misinformation out there that – Um, when I kind of left sports and was exposed to it, I was like, oh my gosh, are these the messages that women have been receiving for years? I mean, athletics has their own crappy messages, but, um, I feel like I spent a lot of effort on social media with clients, just really trying to break this mindset. And so a lot of people who make a lot of money off of you starving yourself and keep giving them money for crappy products and crappy diets that you break because they fail you. So you have to come back and do it again, are lying to you, scamming you harming you in the process where in the reality, all of the truth to all of the major issues we have with nutrition usually lies in some very, very unsexy, unfun approach to nutrition, but it's a lot simpler than you've been told. And that strong bodies are well-fed bodies. You do not run marathons or weight lift or go to CrossFit classes or get better or improve body composition by under eating. You don't do it by fearing carbs And you need seasons where you're not actually dieting at all versus thinking of spending your entire year life from the age you're 13 till you die trying to eat some obscenely low amount of calories, overeating on a Saturday, restricting back on Monday. It's just this cat and mouse and you're never going to get anywhere with it. And it can be really scary to increase intake. But I think the biggest thing that maybe 
you know, is the low hanging fruit to explain to people is that if you eat more food, you're actually going to be able to do more work in your workouts. And you're actually indirectly going to be able to expend more calories, but you're also going to become more efficient as a whole. So it can seem counterintuitive that eating more makes you maybe either lose weight or gain muscle or improve body composition, because we think we have to just that changing our bodies or controlling our bodies needs to be this super hard, restrictive, like obsessive approach, but it's actually kind of the opposite, which can be very hard to let go, but really highly active women, you know, moderate to highly active women, it's these 10, these a thousand, 1200, 1400 calorie diets are, you know, the intake of toddlers are very, very, very inactive people. And so it's not uncommon, it's scary, but it's not uncommon for you to need 1,800, 2,000, 2,400, 2,600, 2,800 calories a day um, to sustain your body composition, your muscle mass, your performance, and your health at the same time. And a lot of times when you're under eating like this, you're not giving your body even enough calories to sustain the things it does to need to keep you alive, let alone allow you to recover from exercise. And this can turn into, you know, premature muscle or bone loss or even loss of your cycle and and negatively impact your health as a whole. And, um, that's why I'm really passionate about getting women to be fed because I know they want, they have body composition goals they care about. But at the end of the day, it's actually all the messages that women are sent from the traditional fitness industry are actually like harming their health and not and helping their metabolism. So not supporting them. It's just kind of putting them on a hamster wheel of failure and feeling miserable and then blaming themselves where the reality is none of those things you failed, they always have failed you. And that there is the choice to be well-fed and train more intentionally and see results in fitness that make you excited to do it rather than just coming from a place of just hate and exhaustion. Amen to that. I've seen a lot of uh, young women that are coming to different uh, medical practitioners with uh, menstrual uh, cycle being lost because of radical uh, diets. And uh, I am certainly sure that social media isn't the right thing at least for now, for young women that might want to lose some weight. But I, I truly appreciate your, your message and uh, I appreciate your work. Yeah, I think a lot of social media now gets people confused because they think that like they either think they have a hormone disorder without being diagnosed because Instagram told them, but then on the contrary, they think that they're absolutely never allowed to change body composition at all. And my podcast is called The Messy Middle because I think that there's always a lot more nuisance and gray that's missing out there. But I say this all to be like, if you're a woman who feels like something is off, go to it. I mean, Vlad's just doing an endocrinology rotation. Like go to a medical doctor that's qualified to help you with that. Um, Or, you know, recognize that you're not a bad person if you have body recomposition goals independent or related to performance, but there are smarter ways to do all of these things. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I'd like to to keep uh, the discussion in the women talk. What's your take on on different brands of supplements that market different uh, uh, supplements like this is for men and this is for women? Man, ladies, if you're listening to this, do not pay more for a pinkified over pink tax supplement. There is no such thing as women's creatine. It's just creatine. Women's protein supplements are usually overpriced, but they have lower doses of protein in them. And then generally like other stuff, I think women are still really heavily marketed BCAAs for some reason, which for the most part aren't usually necessary. They're really heavily marketed things um, that are like pink and pretty and told that are like fat burners and stuff like that. 
I think the biggest thing with women is like women are not small men, but women are also still human beings, right? Men and women are still human at the end of the day. They're not two different species. It's just two different sexes, right? And so you can take the same creatine and protein and pre-workout supplement as, you know, your brother or boyfriend or dad or the guys at the gym. You don't need a pink label supplement that's overpriced, that's targeted towards women and usually actually underdoses things for you and you pay more for it. So I think it's stupid <laughs> um, <laughs> and it makes me mad because it just preys on women and then takes money from them and then thinks that they need su- super magical stuff to be healthy and you don't need to spend all this money on fake promises to be healthy or fit. And what do you think uh, uh, a woman should look for in a supplement? Like what supplements do you consider useful and maybe even uh, mandatory in some cases? Yeah, so I'm a I'm a really big person on like um the simple I say the simple three, but I guess it's four. <laughs> um creatine, protein, caffeine, electrolytes, and then if necessary, appropriate intra-workout carbohydrates. Like those are the five that I'm gonna probably recommend for most people. As a whole, in general, I mean, there are like, you can take pre-workouts and like beta alanine and like nitric oxide boosters and like things like betalite and stuff are big now. And there's some pretty good data on that. But for the most part, general, like overall, um, creatine is one of the most safely regular study things. It benefits you. You don't need women's creatine, but it can help you become stronger. Um, protein supplements, just general whey protein or a well-dosed vegan protein, if that's your thing, making sure that leucine content is above uh, like 2.5 to 3 grams per serving so you can actually simulate your muscle protein synthesis is important um caffeine if you like that for a boost before pre-workout and then if you're doing longer workouts or endurance-based things intra-workout carbohydrate and electrolytes especially in the heat especially in that second half of the menstrual cycle can make a big difference for you so i'm really simple with my supplement approaches um there might be like some more nuisance to little littler ones out there as well but those are the like the, the things that usually do show performance and benefits and help Um, I take Legion supplements. I really like them. They're really transparent about their dosing. That's an issue I have a lot of companies. I feel like they just say blends. You don't know what you're actually taking with stuff. Um, but any company that's willing to tell you it's either third-party tested or is willing to tell you what's actually in it so you know what you're taking um, is usually a good place to start. I take Legion, but there's other good companies out there too that are pretty honest about what they're giving you. Awesome tips. And uh, yeah, keep it simple and effective, right? Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of people end up spending a lot more money and a lot of things they don't need where, you know, if you keep it simple and spend that time, effort and money on the things that we know are effective, you're going to yield a lot more results with a lot less headache. Yeah, totally. So uh, as we almost concluded our talk about women physiology, I'd like to take uh, five, 10 minutes to uh, ask you a little bit about how did you decide to open a business and how do you run it? If that's okay with you. Yeah, Absolutely. So tell us, how did you get the idea and uh, uh, how did you develop it into such a productive and, uh, in my opinion, successful business? Yeah, so I will say, uh, humble bragging, it is a very successful business and sometimes I forget how much work I put into it and I feel like it just like kind of, I woke up one day and I was like, oh crap. Um, but really, I started my PhD and at the time, I mean, it sounds, I want to help people and I care about that, but also, I don't know if anyone knows this, but your funding for your PhD isn't great. So I wasn't being funded that highly, you know, I wasn't making that much money enough to live more than my master's. Um, but then I wasn't really being, I was only making like $600 the entire summer or something like that after student fees for the work I was doing. So I was like, well, crap, like, 
this is an easy solution, right? To make some money. And at that point in time, I knew I was getting my PhD in exercise physiology and I, I, I wasn't happy with the state of the fitness industry. And I had been sharing stuff on Instagram for a while. And I just was like, okay, like I could do this. I could start this. I could, you know, I did, I, I started with small vision, I guess. And then from there, after I got past the fear of just starting it and opening it, it really cascaded and I started to learn the people that were drawn to my my information. And a quick trend I caught really early on was that I was offering something to women that so many people weren't. So my stuff was selling and doing well, even though I was small, by the default of the fact that no one else was offering it. So it was, I mean, it was good. I'm proud of where I started. I, I do way better now than I did with what I offer, but I was started to train for ultra marathons, but I also used to powerlift and I was into weight training. So I did both at the same time. And I trained like an athlete because in my mindset, I was an athlete for years. So it made sense. Like that's how you approach training. You periodize it. You think of the whole year. Uh, Concurrent training isn't that bizarre in athletic, you know what I mean? Realms versus the fitness industry that demonizes running if you want to lift and then runners don't lift at all. And I was like, well, I'm doing both. Uh, But then in general, I just felt that a lot of people were fed a lot of those like PDF booty plans that don't really get you progress or they do temporarily if you're new that they're novel enough to give you a stimulus. And I was like, well, what if we just offer decently structured regular weight training that is, you know, something that is more than just random exercises or swipe videos or some girls what work for her PDF plan. And it, it kind of just grew from there. And I, I, I realized the women that were coming to me were regular everyday women that wanted to feel more athletic and stronger. And they were kind of fed up with the multi-level marketing, you know, beach body coaches and, and fits, fits bows selling them crap that didn't work. And they really, and that's where my phrase demand better came from. Cause I was like, Oh, we're demanding better from the fitness industry. We're demanding better from our training programs. And we're also demanding better from ourselves that we have a higher standards for ourselves. So we don't fall for that misinformation that leads us um, doing really crappy workouts, but underfeeding us and hurting our health in the long run. So then demand better came from that. And uh, it was really slow at first, that first year, 2018. But at the beginning of January, 2019, I only had 5,000 Instagram followers on January 1st, 2019. But there was a pivotal moment where one of my friends, Jesse Hoffman, she's a PhD. She does like gut microbiome stuff. She's really, really wicked smart. Um, I kind of connected with her at some point on Instagram and I was talking to her and I was just so sick of all the misinformation and the prying on insecurities and all of these things, men and women together. But at this point in time, I'm starting to niche myself into female phys a little bit more in my PhD work. Um, and so I remember telling her on that first day, I was like, I'm done. I was like, I'm done. Blow it out the water. And um, I rebrand, I self-branded myself. I started making better content. I started posting like super regularly. Um, I got more specific on honing my niche I knew what the woman that followed me was struggling with, and I knew that I had to help them. I had a running ebook at this time, um, and no one else in the fitness industry had a running ebook or even had a running ebook that talked about combining it with strength training. I had strength training programs to pair with it. Um, I was helping, you know, people get to their first 5K to marathon with less injury and stronger and more athletic overall. I was helping, you know, these women cr- crush these great goals that no one else told them they were allowed to have in the industry because they're only allowed bodybuilding or like booty workouts. And there's so much more out there to fitness that you're allowed to have. And I just started to kind of call out a bunch of stuff in the fitness industry, but using that as an opportunity to educate what actually is true or the science behind things, not talking to people like they're stupid and they can't understand stuff. So that became like a big tone and language in my thing was like, I want to educate you. I want to teach you. I want to help you. I want to give you the tools that like one day you don't actually need me, but to actually have people that feel like they're more 
prepared and equipped for life with their fitness and nutrition and have more autonomy in it. Um, and I just grew from there. And in 2019, I pushed really hard and I started to grow more and I, you know, I made my programs better and I pushed a little bit harder. I kept growing on social media, started doing more podcast stuff. I'm still racing. I'm still training. I'm still sharing all of that. I'm sharing my PhD journey. And then last year things really blew up ironically with COVID. Um, but I just feel like I rebranded about a year ago and that's, you know, where my branding got even better. I was even better at identifying my niche and my target market. And I knew who I was helping and I knew what they needed and I knew how to help them. Um, and I just got really good at making content. But then on top of that, I'm also a PhD student. So within all of this, I'm not just making content on social media or training myself, but I'm also reading hundreds of scientific articles and I'm learning and I'm in classes and I, I took my comps, I passed candidacy. I think I read like three or 400 scientific articles last year, something stupid like that. And so my knowledge base is growing. So my community just kind of grew with me. And so things got better and we improved stuff and we made them better. I redid all of my eBooks that I had released. I redid my programs. I restructured stuff on the back end so I can make it automated and scalable and bigger um, on my end while also saving me the time and hassle of a lot of administrative stuff. Um, I started outsourcing more, I started hiring out, doing all of these things that are actually business moves, but it all really just started with a dream in 2018 to like, you know, help a couple of women chase their goals. Um, and then it cascaded into like, well, what if we can make the industry better? And what if we can do it by being honest and authentic and not scamming people and actually helping people and telling them the correct thing to do? Um, and not making them feel stupid or talking to them like they're stupid, but giving them the empowerment and the education to take control of their health and fitness themselves um, and define what that means for them. And that's kind of what I've pivoted my entire business off of while also just trying to be, you know, as good of an evidence-based voice of reason in our industry and kind of hopefully being a role model to younger girls in exercise science and fitness that they don't have to fade into the background, that they can be the long, long the, the loud, strong voices in the industry. They have important things to say. They are smart. Um, so it's really just turned into this whole thing that I'm probably launching my career off of, which is crazy to think. So I guess that's the backstory. That's quite the story. Uh, and I'd like to congratulate you for your whole road and journey. It sounds uh, very exhausting. <laughs> I, I, I only listen. A lot of work. <laughs> I, I only listen to it and I feel exhausted. <laughs> Yeah, I do a bad, I did, I did a really bad job of giving myself credit for how hard I worked on everything until probably about a few months ago. Um, and then, yeah, that's, and then I was like, oh, okay, I actually did a lot more work than I have admitted to myself. So it, it was very tiring. Yeah, well, again, congratulations. But you forget one essential thing, and that is where, to tell our followers where can they find you. Yeah, so you can follow me, um, Littlest Fitness is what I'm known as. So you can, it's at Littlest Fitness on Instagram and then littlestfitness.com is where you can find everything. Um, but I hang out the most on Instagram. You can get on my email list from my website. I also send out a ton of emails and stuff like that. And then I have my own podcast called The Messy Middle Podcast. And our season two will be, hopefully by the time this is out or a little bit shortly after, we'll be out with season two and you can find more information. There. Well, that's that being said, this concludes our episode. It was a great talk. Thank you for everything, Alisa. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I hope we can do this again in the future sometime. Yeah, I hope you guys learned something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really hope they, they did. I'm actually, I'm sure they did. But uh, yeah, uh, this was the end of our episode. Uh, stay tuned and uh, see who we got uh, next time.